0: (laughs) So this afternoon, we want to continue with exploring the uh, territory of how to respond skillfully in challenging or difficult uh, circumstances, and particularly, particularly in the context of speech practice. And I'm going to just talk for 10 or 15 minutes and bring out five more points and then uh, briefly each of them, and then uh, we'll we'll work with some uh, interactive practices together. So Oren and I reflected some during lunch on the question of what, uh, how we respond when someone seems very quickly to go over threshold. We were looking at that kind of issue and we both uh, I think started our discussion by acknowledging that we didn't know if we had a, you know, real immediate great answers, but we reflected. I think there was a certain uh, clarity that came and I certainly have had personal experience for uh, in a sustained way with that kind of situation. So reflected on a few things first uh, could be very important. And this, this, this really can be generalized to a lot of situations where there's some kind of challenge first to ask, is that person capable of talking um, with you? Or are we capable of talking about the situation and the, the threshold, the behavior and so forth? In some situations, the answer would be yes. In um, many situations, perhaps where that's the case, the, the answer would be no, right? And that's frustrating, can be frustrating. But it's a very important question to ask. You know, basically, is there the possibility of talking together to reach a common understanding? Sometimes there's not. And when there's uh, not that kind of possibility, then I was thinking of some of my own personal experiences where there was, you know, it could be a coworker, a family member, someone in the community where there's that very high threshold, what to do, you know. And, you know, I thought of some things that I've worked with, you know, including really emphasizing cultivating the positive to try to build, you know, further connection and trust without necessarily going into the hard territories. You know, that would be where there's a, a long-term relationship, you know. You know, where we, we might, you know, we might in some situations just make the choice not to not to stay connected to that person and then I f- have found also just a certain amount of inner practices helpful such as forgiveness uh, and compassion just to be uh, to be quite uh, useful um, yeah and then again trying to be skillful with my own mindfulness and my own speech practice but other things that we could do as well. So that's uh, a first point. Um, Second point had to do with um, something that you might not have noticed or you might have noticed at one moment in the morning session, Oren said, ouch. Mm -hmm. Did you notice, remember that? Yeah. which is, um, can be used actually as a technique. It's actually a, uh, Second foundation of mindfulness, uh, feeling tone, emphasis on the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral technique, could be interpreted as that. That we're actually noticing, uh, oh, that doesn't feel good. And in some groups, actually, it is a group, uh, a shared norm, to say such a thing, rather than go right to a reaction, to a judgment, to a, a blame. Uh, and of course, one can say, ouch, in all sorts of ways in terms of tone. But uh, one can actually, in some groups, people might say, ouch. Meaning that, oh, that, that hurts. And I notice the unpleasantness. And again, the teaching is that when, we, when we're not mindful of what's unpleasant, we tend to go to reaction, right? And so that's a way of sort of, it's almost like a pause, where we acknowledge it's painful. Now, we can do that verbally. And I know that for myself, in the situation I mentioned yesterday, which was something I studied, a situation I studied a lot, where I was interacting with a boss who I thought often changed the subject when I would bring up a point. And I worked with that situation, and one of the ways I worked with it was actually trying to tune in, because this, this happened a number of times. I would try to tune in with mindfulness at the very moment that that happened. My initial reaction was just, bam, bam, he acted in this way, and my mind went to, as I mentioned, uh, emotionally distanced uh, moral superiority, right? And I became able to try to, you know, I would sometimes go to these meetings and say, if that happens, I'm going to try to tune into it. And I would, act, I would be able to, uh, that happened, I would tune in, i said, say, oh, that doesn't feel good. And I would feel the pain, and I could start sometimes feel the judgment starting to form, but it wasn't automatic in the same way. It was a kind of making of everything in slow motion and touching in on the pain. And when actually, when I practiced that more and more, I became more able to do that, to actually touch the pain in the moment. And when I could touch the pain, uh, I actually was not reactive, at least in that situation. And then I could say something like, you know, that's. Um, What I just said is an important point for me. I'm wondering if we could come back to it, which is very different from what I would have said from the place of emotionally distanced moral superiority, but it it came from really uh, being able to touch into the pain. Of course, that's possible in some situations and not in others. So touching that pain sometimes could say ouch, sometimes could say ouch to oneself, but touching the pain and noticing the tendency of the pain to lead to being triggered or to be reactive. So second point. The third point is that as we continue our inner work of different kinds, some, some of it's looking at our psychological material, some of it may be healing, uh, where there's trauma still in our system, addressing some of the issues that Oren's mentioned. Um, As we continue to heal, what triggers us will shift. And I I know from the one-on-ones, a lot of deep work's being done here by people at this retreat, and we want to support that continuing. But as we do that, we might call it healing work and working with if there's residues of trauma or all of us have what we might call limiting beliefs from childhood and so forth. As we work to transform that material, um, something that triggered us in the past no longer triggers us. The same thing with as we do, as we grow with our spiritual practice. There's inner transformation that occurs which, which shifts us in terms of Uh, what's difficult and what's not. And we can have by the not, it's not complete, but the inner work plays a big role in our transformation. I think we're both very much proponents of the combination of inner work and skillful outer action, skillful interaction. And the uh, fourth point is that, um, and this is the fourth and the fifth points are going more into a more social dimension. The fourth point is that we can actually have, um, in our groups, we can have, start to have uh, shared guidelines that represent some of the ways that we've been working here. It's possible to have that in groups, and you know some groups that will work well and some groups that work it won't. I think I mentioned the way that I was able to have a group guideline of uh, following the four Buddhist ethical uh, guidelines. And we were able to adopt that in a group. And, you know, probably many of you have been in groups or it could be also in uh, more electronic type of groups or, or groups where people are communicating together, you could have some guidelines, which represents some of the values of, of listening, of um, listening for others' needs and so forth. And, you know, there, are, I, maybe I won't go into it. I brought in some sample guidelines from, you know, one of the ways that I, I, I worked for a lot of years with, with uh, small groups with the uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And we had a program called the BASE Program. And we, we did six month training groups And we would typically uh, have a weekend retreat to start the program. And the last morning or so, we would gather together and collectively come up with group guidelines that would cover different aspects of the interaction. A lot of them covered communication and how we can communicate together. So there are ways of in a way manifesting our intentions at a group level. Again, it's a large topic. We may even come back to that, but that's That's a possibility, that we can bring some of what we're learning. It could be for a family, for a couple, for a group, for a workplace, and so forth. And then the last one is um, related to bringing this, some of the spirit of this into the field of uh, action and activism. And uh, Orin and I were talking some, and. And I, I've, I've, I've always wondered about, you know, the distinction between request and demand and how, you know, because in many activist circles, uh, people talk about demands, right? Talk about the demand for equal rights, right? So, uh, you know, so how does, how does that relate? Um, and I think the, you know, uh, part of what was helped by our discussion, and it fits with a brief story I'm going to tell, is that it's really the spirit of, uh, are we still in connection? Uh, even if I say it's really, you know, uh, my, uh, you know, I was thinking of examples from the civil rights movement, that uh, there can be ways of saying, you know, and maybe even using the language of demands, but it has elements that are there in the model we're talking about. That is there's non demonization. There can be empathy with the opponent. If you look at the work of Dr. King, for example, and some of the work in the civil rights movement, they made a very strong effort to have connection and point towards what Dr. King called the beloved community. And it, and it was still in the point of saying that they used the word demand sometimes, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that was, uh, threatening something for the opponent so much. And I thought I'd just read a a little bit of a a powerful story that came, I I think I mentioned the role plays in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And some of you may wanna in the, the, perhaps in some of your public libraries, there is the uh, video called A Force More Powerful. It's also a book of that, which is one of the best chronicles of nonviolent action. And one of the six segments is on Nashville, Tennessee, 1960 uh, work led by James Lawson. And they had a very, the most sophisticated of the trainings for nonviolence in the whole civil rights movement. And they had been starting sit-ins at lunch counters at drugstores and other kind of stores where there were counters to protest segregation you know, at that time, African-Americans could shop at a store, but they couldn't go to the lunch counter. That was the law. Right. And, and so they were protesting that and, um, it had been going on for a number of months and was quite, uh, quite impactful. And, uh, there was a beginning of a, a boycott of the downtown stores. And at that time, there was was a quite a bit of tension at that time. There was a bombing of the home of the leading African-American, uh, lawyer of Nashville named uh, Alexander Luby. And the bombing happened, I think at six in the morning, no one was killed. That was fortunate. And there became there, um, grew a uh, spontaneous March, which started from his house and was going to uh, town hall to the civic center. And the attempt was to try to meet with the mayor. That was what they wanted to do. And they started and over the course of the route, the March grew to um, 4,000 people. It was a peaceful March. And they came to the, uh, uh, to the steps of the courthouse where they were going to meet the mayor who was named uh, Ben West. Immediately, uh, an activist uh, who played a prominent role in the civil rights movement named C.T. Vivian, some of you may know his name. He got into a very heated argument with, with uh, the mayor and was criticizing him very vehemently for um, not condemning uh, the various kinds of violence, including the bombing. And, and criticizing him really in a heated way for what the police had done. The mayor said, I've done so much for black people, and he said it was, it was very polarized. At that point, one of the student leaders, because the movement had been led by student leaders. One of them was John Lewis, you know, the, the congressman, and at that point, One of the leaders, a woman named uh, Diane Nash, who is still teaching, one of my colleagues, Kazu Haga, has studied with her in Chicago. And she uh, went up and uh, intervened and started talking with uh, the mayor. And what she did was she engaged in dialogue in a respectful way. Even, we could reconstruct this, even identifying his needs, talking about his core values. She appealed to his sense of fairness, which he liked to, he talked about being a fair person. So she talked about fairness, and she asked the mayor, this is a quote, do you feel that it's wrong to discriminate against a person solely on the basis of race or color? West later said, I tried to answer it frankly and honestly. So you can see there's a, there's a dialogue here. In the midst of a previous confrontation, there, there's a dialogue. He said later, I could not agree that it was morally right for someone to sell the merchandise and refuse them service." Then she asked, should the lunch counters uh, be desegregated very directly? He hemmed and hawed. She continued. She asked him again, then, Mayor West, do you recommend that the lunch counters be desegregated? And at that point, he said, yes. And the whole of um, Nashville changed. something which had gone on for um, 90 years since the civil war and of course, way before that with that dialogue where there was a sense of um, non, non polarizing communication and connecting on the basis of what she took to be his values. There was a ship. So I thought I'd bring that up as for me, a very inspiring story about how to speak in that kind of difficult situation.